Hello and welcome to another episode of the Leaders Sport Business Podcast. My name is James Emmett. I'm the Editorial Director at Leaders and with me as ever is David Kushnan, the Content Director at Leaders. We're not with each other. We're remote. I'm remote. He's there in the HQ. David, how are you? Uh, yes, I'm here and it's good to be here, although not uh, with you there. What's, what are we calling this podcast now, the tagline for this podcast? I think we is came up the, with this. Is it the podcast for leaders by leaders? It's something like that. The podcast mm. about leaders in sport by leaders in sport? Yes. That yeah, might be it. that's it. Well, that's what it is. Um, and today we've got a leader in sport on. It's Amanda Calder McLaren. Um, she's joining us later. She's the newly installed CMO of um, what she calls the fastest growing sportswear brand in the UK, Monterex, uh, sporting and outdoor wear brand. She has just joined from a nine-year stint as the senior um, brand marketing person. Is that right? What was, uh, what was, what was her job title? Oh, she basically yeah, she ran nice. marketing at EMEA um, at the North Face. Um, and uh, Amanda's going to be joining us a little bit later. Would you like her job title? Yeah, please go on. Let's make it more official. Former senior brand marketing director. So I think we're just about right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, anyway, uh, we've known Amanda for many years. Um, she used to work for Techno Gym, um, Adidas, all sorts of um, consumer sports um, companies um, working in and around the sports marketing space. She's a rising star, I would say, in the sports marketing world. And we are very lucky to have her on to talk all things sports marketing, outdoor wear, and um, a little bit of um, inclusivity in the outdoor environment later as well. David, what's going on in your world? Well, uh, we are continuing to, I think we're, I'm going to say we're sort of concluding. Don't say planning. Don't say planning. Well, we're concluding the planning process okay, for 2024 good. and we're now right. in the doing phase, uh, which is good. Um, although personally, I'm doing quite a lot of administration around Excel docs, which I, uh, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not particularly my favorite, uh, thing to do or, or my skill set. But, um, yes, lots going on in terms of, um, our first big event of the year that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, uh, Force New York had a very interesting call with, um, the team at Strava the other day, actually, who, have just put together and actually um, maybe relates a little bit to what we are going to talk to Amanda about um, because they did this really interesting um, study of their user base uh, a a few weeks ago talking about um, what's going up, what's going down in terms of physical disciplines. Uh, So here's the news, James. Gravel cycling up 55% on the year. Uh, Trail running up 16% on the year. Mountain biking, care to take a guess? Is it up? 13%, correct. Right. Hiking? Also up. Yes. Uh, so what was down? Anything down? Unclear what was down, but right. uh, it turns out that uh, people who use Strava like using Strava and staying in touch. Well, do you know what, David? I never, I don't want to undermine that. I like Strava and I like the people at Strava. And actually, I hope that we have an interesting session at Force in New York with Strava. I use Strava. Um, I wish Mm. they had a better messaging platform. I would like to DM people on Strava. But I have to say, with the data that you've just um, hit me with there, those numbers are lying. Um, 
or, or at least they're not telling the full story. As a user of Strava, uh, they have recently introduced a whole new range of options that you can do. You start your exercise, what are you doing? Usually in the past, it was, I'm going on a run, I'm going on a cycle. Then they introduced swimming. And now they've introduced a whole plethora of options, including hiking, gravel, whatever. So it's no wonder that the numbers are going up. Well, they're so, all up. They're all up. Fine. Yeah. Uh, but just coming back to you, uh, your desire for a, a better uh, messaging app on yeah. Strava. Is yeah. this, uh, am I right in thinking that you're using this as a form of sort of online networking and, and Do network you know what? building? Yeah. There's a yeah. lot of sports industry execs uh, around the there Strava are. ecosystem. Yeah. So I follow uh, and I am followed on Strava by a few sports industry folk and I follow a few sports industry folk on Strava. Um, Gary Double, former communications chief at IMG, is a very generous man with his kudos. That's what you give each other, the thumbs up. You give thumbs ups on Strava. They're called kudos. Gary Double gives me a kudos almost every day. And honestly, it's the little pat on the bum I need to... Uh, to, <laughs> to to make make you know turn my frown upside down and make sure, sure I, I get on my way. Um, Good. I follow uh, a whole range of cycling executives just to sort of see whether they you know put their money where their mouth is. Um, I, I follow former UCI president Pat McQuaid and another former UCI president um, Brian Cookson. I can tell you that McQuaid is ahead of Cookson in terms of um, vertical miles climbed, um, but Cookson loves a picture on his Strava. So uh, yeah, I, I would welcome the opportunity to interact with them a bit more rather than just, you know, checking out what cycling they've been doing. It is interesting, isn't it? It was once exclusively the domain of LinkedIn and the artist formerly known as Twitter, but there is definitely an increasing, I'm noticing in my own sort of social media life, online life, there's definitely a creep uh, of professional- It's me. I'm the creep. Well, <laughs> Perhaps, uh, but there's definitely a creep of professional contacts seeping into what I would tend to use as uh, personal social media platforms. For example, Instagram. I know you're a little bit more sports, business, professional friendly on uh, on Insta. Would that be fair? I'm, you are, I'm a little bit less personal post, so mm. you know, um, I'm, I'm I'll happily share my my toings and throwings with um, you know the the third ring of my personal network. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, if you if you sort of if you're at the centre and then your um, your friends and family and you sort of do concentric rings going outside of uh, the centre and you put those people you know close to you in the first yeah. ring and then the second layer out friends of friends third layer out prof professional sounds, personal acquaintances it sounds like this is a sort of annual audit that you do yeah, at the start I do, of the year i do yeah. a sort of dante's inferno on my uh on my, on my friends uh, every year yeah um it, congratulations david you moved from third to second this year that's so, good yeah. now what yeah. a delight you know mm. a pleasure to be in the second ring uh, yes, indeed. Um, shall we get on with it and do our weekly news roundup? You turn around this way, I'll turn around that way, and together we'll have the full 360 covered. This is 180 seconds of Sports Bits. And a week in which the Super Bowl was all set up. Taylor Swift, the San Francisco 49ers, Las Vegas and the Kansas City Chiefs. And Jurgen Klopp stunned the football world, but a busy one for key executive announcements too. Richard Garlick, Arsenal Director of Football Operations, will become the club's managing director in the summer when current CEO Vinay Venkatesham steps down. 
Garlic has been with Arsenal since 2021. Just a couple of weeks after her surprise departure from Amazon, Marie Donoghue has been confirmed as DraftKings' new Chief Business and Growth Officer. Former ESPN executive Donoghue helped launch Prime Video's Thursday Night Football during her nearly six years at Amazon, but is now joining DraftKings' leadership team as the sports betting firm chases down market leader FanDuel. Meanwhile, Vince McMahon has resigned from his role as executive chairman of TKO, the new parent of WWE and UFC. McMahon has been accused of sexual assault and trafficking by a former WWE employee. The 78-year-old denies the allegations. McMahon returned to the WWE board in early 2023 following an investigation after retiring as CEO and chairman in 2022 amid allegations of sexual misconduct. A busy week for Visa's sponsorship team. The company has renewed its global partnership with FIFA until after the 2026 Men's World Cup. And it's confirmed its entry into Formula One after striking a naming rights deal with the Red Bull-owned team known until last season as Alpha Tauri. It's joined forces with Cash App to rename the team Visa Cash App RB. It's Visa's first major new global sports sponsorship for 15 years. Ferrari has announced plans to develop an ocean racing project in partnership with noted Italian navigator Giovanni Soldini. It, was also, it has also formalised its deal with Asahi, which will see the Peroni brand become a sponsor of its F1 team this season. Elsewhere in sponsorship news, the San Francisco 49ers have confirmed Levi's has signed a major extension of its naming rights deal. The new stadium agreement is a 10-year extension worth $170 million, meaning Levi's will hold the rights at the Santa Clara venue until at least the end of the 2043 NFL season. And finally, seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady is merging his nutrition brand, TB12, and clothing company Brady with Noble. He'll join Body Armor founder Mike Repol, who acquired Noble last year as major shareholder as Noble seeks to transition into a complete wellness company. And that was 180 Seconds of Sports Biz. Okay, let's bring in our guest on the podcast this week. And it's a guest with an exciting new role to tell us about. So let's say hello to Amanda Calder-McLaren. Amanda, how are you? Hello, I'm well. How are you? Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. Uh, first of all, where are you? Right now, I'm sat in my living room in Switzerland. You can see some mountains. The mountain backdrop is, as hopefully people will see as this podcast is promoted far and wide, uh, quite fabulous. Um, and as trailed, you have some exciting news to tell us about a brand new role that you're literally just days into? Three, three days into. Yeah. So uh, probably not the best timing for you guys, but you never know. You might like that transitional time. Montrex is a challenger brand coming out of the northwest of England. They are a predominantly sportswear brand, but they also do make products in the outdoors as well. So they're a technical sportswear brand. They also make outerwear. Uh, They've only been around, I think, technically for almost five years. But in that time, they have shown some impressive growth. And the two founders, Danny and Kieran, are two of the most impressive people I have met in the last few years. So, and I can talk about it more. But yeah, I'm excited to 
to go back into a bit more of a challenger brand, big, big beast territory. Good. Manda, you're the, you're the new CMO at this um, Excite. And you described it yesterday in our prep call as the oh. fastest growing sportswear, I think you called it giant, uh, in it coming out of UK. Um, well, I was, yeah. Uh, so at the moment, the UK is actually quite exciting for sportswear yeah. brands. You can probably name a few. Yeah. Uh, Gymshark, well, probably the biggest right now. There's Castor. Yeah. And then there's Monterex. They're all very different, which is what I quite like about them. Um, but it's it's a testament to the talent that exists in the UK. Uh, but Monterex is is growing exceptionally fast for for their infancy. They make incredibly good products, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where we can take them next. To be honest. Three days into the role, uh, presumably yeah. it's a clothing brand. Presumably you get a new sort of swag bag uh, of welcome merch. What's I got in some it? socks. Yes. Yeah. Swag socks. I bet warm ones, right? Toasty ones. Do you warm. know what? You can tell a lot from from the socks made by a brand. It sounds silly, but you know, the attention people pay to the socks is indicative of the attention that they pay to the rest of the product. Just saying. Okay. I would always check out a brand's socks before you go and buy their jacket. I did also get a very lovely jacket, but what Monterex, I'm learning, what Monterex is most famous for is... A, they're sort of king of the tracksuit, for want of a better phrase, as well as um, space dye tees. So they have this amazing technology that weaves colours together and adds technical perforations, kind of woven fabrics. And it's really bright, really stylish, but really, it performs really well. So that's what they're probably, that's probably what they're most known for. Well, it's good to have you on, Amanda, and we're going to chat more about your new role and actually a little bit about what you've been doing over the past few years as well. But James, should we get into a couple of the bits and pieces that we just talked about on the 180 of Sportsbiz? Yes, please. Um, can I go first? Mm. Thank you. Um, one that caught my eye was the um, pretty straightforward on the surface renewal of um, the stadium naming rights deal between Levi's and the mega NFL stadium in Santa Clara, the San Francisco 49ers home. Um, yep. Obviously, 49ers coming up um, as Super Bowl competitors in a couple of weeks. Um, Levi's was the founding naming rights partner when that stadium opened um, in the early 2010s. Um, and it has signed on until the 2043 season. What was the what was the figure quoted, David? The the money. It's 170 million dollars, and it's a 10 year extension to a deal that was already due to run until 2033. Yes. Um, so um, Al Guido, who's the president of the San Francisco Cisco 49ers, who we know quite well, has been um, well quite. Rightly, sort of giving uh, his team uh, congratulatory uh, backslaps on LinkedIn, saying what a nice uh, deal, and it is a nice deal. He's posted all of these figures that I presume were in a sales deck um, for this Levi's renewal. I mean, it's nothing sort of, don't worry, he's not giving the game away, um, but it's sort of numbers about economic impact and nice. um, contributions to tax revenue to local government. and. The figures are suitably large. $2 billion worth of economic impact that Levi Stadium has generated since its, uh, its foundation. Uh, $333 million in tax revenue to local governments. It's a good stadium. It's a good deal. Um, 
the reason it caught my eye uh, is because I think it's kind of in Manda's wheelhouse, to be honest, which is sort of um, consumer clothing brand um, yep. making an impact in sports marketing. Manda, did uh, Naming Rights Deal ever come across your desk uh, at, at the North Face? Regularly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Many. I think in, yeah, in today's kind of marketplace, to not consider naming rights and stadiums and bigger inventories like that to, to reach people would be slightly naive. I, I was also interested in this because for me, it seems like a no-brainer, really. Like I am interested in the fact that because it's closing brand sport, that was something that you, that you drew on. But for me, it, was, it wasn't about that. For me, it was the fact that it was a big brand who was trying to tell you where they were from. Mm-hmm. And they're born and bred in San Francisco. It's their home ground. And so to therefore associate themselves with a home ground from the area is a really quick way to give a consumer a message without having to constantly say, we're from San Francisco. By the way, we were founded in San Francisco. Whereas this, you've got global reach. It's, it tells you the message to the consumer without having to overthink it. And sometimes things are as simple as that. Yeah. You know, yeah. what is it that you want to tell people and how do you want to tell tell it to them? Give back to the community. Community, I know, is going to be a topic we talk about a lot today. And any brand that wants to tell something should be able to associate with, with local passion, local fans, local communities. I think the fact that it's a sport actually wasn't at the forefront of Levi's mind when they signed that. I don't know. I don't know them. But let's me bring up. Uh, what on earth is going in form- on in Formula One at the moment in terms of a new team brand uh, which was announced last week. So this is Red Bull's second team, uh, the team that was once called uh, Toro Rosso, once known as Alpha Tauri up until the end of last season. And this coming season and beyond, it's going to be known as Visa Cash App F1 as part of a pair of sponsorship deals that the team that Red Bull has struck with Visa, obviously big uh, US brand coming into F1, big globally recognized brand coming into F1, and Cash App, which is a uh, you know a financial services. And uh, this is the brand that they have ended up with, which to say the least is a mouthful and doesn't necessarily scream F1 team brand. Maybe it will if, it, if it's around for, for decades. Um, I think there's something really interesting happening here. If you take the 10 Formula One teams, and we, we all know Formula One's booming at the moment, the 10 franchises effectively have all grown significantly in value. And if you look at the 10 of them, you've got six of those are traditional car manufacturers or you know motorsport organizations, racing teams with heritage, so Williams, McLaren. Aston Martin, Mercedes, Ferrari, and Alpine, Renault's sporty brand. Then you've got two other teams that are owned by non-car manufacturer brands. So Red Bull, which has been around since 2005 and obviously been hugely successful. And Haas F1, which is named after the owner, Gene Haas's um, machine tooling company. And then the other two teams are in this really odd position of having completely changed their team brands, but uh, given the brand name away to new sponsors for the 2024 season. So what was the Alfa Romeo team has now been renamed State F1, 
um, as part of a deal with the betting company. Now, that's a that's a transitional phase for that team. It is in the process of being bought by Audi. It will ultimately become Audi F1 in a couple of years, so it will sort itself out. And then you have what was Alpha Tauri, the Red Bull-owned junior team, if you like, which now has this um, fairly ludicrous name in some respects, um, Visa Cash App RB. It's unclear exactly. They haven't been explicit about what the RB stands for, but obviously Red Bull, there's some uh, talk about racing bulls, so they might end up being known as that. But it, it all feels like a little bit of a uh, of a mess, to say the least. And I wonder whether one or two eyebrows are being raised at F1 central organization, who of course are all about upholding the sort of premium brand of F1. And uh, I'm not quite sure that these two team names, as they will be for this season, um, stand up to that mark. It gives a perfect distinction for, I mean, Ferrari, Mercedes, etc. will be rubbing rubbing their hands, won't they? This is a a clear brand distinction on the grid. Uh, The manufacturers stay classy, stay expensive, and everyone else sounds like a cycling team. Yeah, and and I wonder whether there's there's something about categories here. Obviously, Visa, Cash App, both financial services brands, state as a betting brand. They're not quite the sort of brands that you might necessarily immediately think of when you think of a a motor racing team uh, in the same way as you might think about Red Bull as a sort of energy drinks brand with a very particular appetite for extreme sports um so there's maybe something in that on the other hand of course it is undeniably good news for f1 as a whole in this sort of liberty owned era they've managed to attract another big us brand or another two but visa in particular deciding to come in it won't be a small deal for these sort of rights um it's also worth saying that there's a potentially a bit of a bigger picture going on in that there's some talk that um red bull may be preparing to sell the junior team uh, there's uh, as there tends to be bubbles up every few years there, there's a little bit of disquiet in and around formula one about how close the two teams are red bull racing and the junior team from a technical standpoint and you know whether that's quite in the in the spirit of the of the rules and the regulations around f1 so there might be a bit of that uh, in this as well but I think it's a less than ideal situation um, heading into uh, the new season. But as you say, James, there might be benefits as well for some of the other uh, the other teams. Uh, I mean, Amanda, from your point of view, I guess this is a bit about brand clutter and the sort of grey area between naming rights, as we've talked about, and sponsorship and team brand and sort of brand value. Where, how do you sort of how do you approach questions like that uh, from a sort of brand side perspective? Well, it's confused me a bit. I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm just curious to understand Visa's um, objective is to teaming up with another financial app brand, creating this kind of co-branded team. I mean, there's clearly something there about them helping up this app. So there's clearly something there about like, you know, custodian brands supporting younger brand to grow and get that traction by being affiliated with Visa. So there's something there. 
I think if I was Visa, I'd just be concerned about the optics and the sentiment of this sponsorship. Like they're clearly trying to communicate something by aligning with with Formula One as potentially challenger, trying to become more of a premium luxury lender. I'm not I'm not sure. At the same point, what you don't want to do is come into a beloved industry and play it wrong. And that's a that is a mistake a lot of brands try and like make they badge something without really understanding if you are adding to that community and that fan base or if you're trying to capitalize on that community and that fan base. And those are the questions that now good marketeers need to ask themselves because I, I do think that's that's changed now. You don't get away with it anymore and you shouldn't. When you were running sports marketing for EMEA for um, the North Face, what yep. was the best what was the best kind of deal, the best, the best partnership that you did, do you reckon, over that time? Oh, the best Because I know you didn't do a title deal with a Formula One team. No, I didn't. No. Came close. Mm. Never. No. Um, so North Face, we had a bit of a different kind of approach. When I joined the North Face, we actually had got rid of all of our title sponsorships. So we used to sponsor UTMB as the headline sponsor, Lavaredo Ultra Tour. We had a lot of um, big trail running events. And then as I joined, they'd got rid of all of them. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I think we made, and it was while I was on maternity leave, so I do need to call, was not going back uh, into the UTMB sponsorship uh, territory. We were given the chance and they opted not to. Um, but I believe in very much that there was a, there was a weird stage where brands believed that sponsoring races wasn't, was too detached from the actual communities and as if it's better to kind of create your own communities. It's kind of gone in a in a wave. Like it became back in the day people used to try and capitalize on community, for want of a better word, or an event or, a, or an ecosystem. They used to try and go and sell to them. That's changed. And then it became a bit of, you know, we don't want to do that. We're going to create our own community. So that's when a lot of people started popping up their own events or their own sponsorships formulas because then they had you know direct interaction with the consumers they could get the data and somehow it felt a bit more efficient and now it's actually gone away from that again uh which i also agree with where now it's more of the mindset of serving the communities serving the consumers how and where they want to be served and that can involve pre-existing infrastructures that they absolutely love like the utmb which is ultra trail mont blanc if you don't know it, it's obviously been bought by the ironman group but it was like Yes, I don't know. I need a better word. You, you go through the words, but like the bastion of of trail running, it, it's like the creme de la creme. There's not another event like that, and it's growing and growing, and it's hard to grow events in the mountain because people think it's you know selling out or becoming too commercial. And it's at a really interesting phase right now where the athletes are kind of challenging this new infrastructure, the UTMB, because it's become quite commercial. And they, for example, have sold rights to like a car brand. Now, if you work in the mountain. That's not really a very good look. And, you know, that's why we'd never go for Formula One. But I do think that finding these big events that people love and care about, and just as I left, we'd sponsored a couple of um, a couple of other ones, like uh, the TGC Trans Grand Canaria, which is kind of a challenging moment to UTMB. And there are big snow events, like the Freeride World Tour, an excellent property that peak performance sponsor. And my new firm fave, which is Natural Selection, which is an epic um kind of competitor to Freeride World Tour is more run out of the state and something like the X Games which actually a couple of the guys from North Face have now gone across 
uh, and work over there. But those are big broadcast properties now in our industry that are well worth partnering and sponsoring. So as you were working the North Face, and I guess in your new role as well, and you're looking at some of these properties, Mm -hmm. and you know, as you just explained, that there is a certain reluctance to see those properties over-commercialized. Yeah. What are you... How does the decision making process work? Because I guess from a from a brand point of view, you are you're inclined to sort of push and push and push and sort of edge, you know, towards getting more, getting more bang for your buck. Yeah. What what's what's informing decisions about how much is too much in terms of taking over a property, for example? Yeah, I don't think brands think about is it too much in terms of taking it over, which I. You know, it's a, good, it's a good approach. I don't think I've thought of it like that. But what matters first is what are we trying to say and what are we trying to do as a brand? So what what messaging and, you know, what is it that we want to bring to life in the brand by, by creating this partnership? And then the selection of the partnership is the most critical thing. You know, often you can find something that's kind of right because it's the right sport, but yet might be the wrong territory or might have a different approach or might not be commercial enough because it's linked to a specific product like we had this problem all the time in the north face like what area of your business is the biggest area but yeah you know bespoke alpinism climbing isn't isn't particularly maths so like you have to kind of work out all these different factors and then once like occasionally something really smart comes along when you're like brilliant brand match we match ideologies and it's mutually beneficial not just for the brand and the sponsor but for both of the communities around the brand and around the event so what can this brand bring to that sponsorship property in that community and what can they give back if you see what I mean so that they work when it matches like that you're in sponsorship heaven but you have to get there and it takes a while to get it there but those are the things that I'm like if that makes sense you know when you see a collab or a partnership and you're like what why like as a consumer you know how you feel about it so and those are the ones that I try and avoid or you do them in a really provocative way to move a brand or an event somewhere else Talking of um, of collabs, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That absolutely yeah. makes sense. Good. Um, talking of collabs, um, the North Face obviously did some fairly high profile collaborations in the fashion space. Um, we did in the time that you were there. Yeah, the Gucci one in particular made a real impact. I think. Um, how does something like that get put together, and where? As marketing, where does your bit sit within it and where are yeah. you sort of seeing impact and where are you yeah. kind of reinforcing that collaboration? Oh, so collab strategy is my favourite thing to talk about. So yes. thanks for asking. Um, it was part of the kind of, my, I mean, my background is I've always worked in sport and culture kind of alongside each other, heavy music, heavy sport. And if you can find that, those areas, somebody who understands kind of both and have teams that understand both areas, that's where you can really go right or you can very quickly go wrong uh, if you don't understand the two worlds. I remember when I first started at the North Face and this was ooh, nine years ago. Um, I worked for two years in London then I moved to the mountains six and a half years ago. And when I arrived in the mountains, I remember my boss at the time, Cass Smith, powerhouse in the sportswear industry, if you don't know, she's now on the board of JD. She was the CEO of uh, EMEA North Face at the time. I remember saying to me, we need cues. And I was like, oh, what? And she was like, we need cues. 
outside our stores. I want a queue. I was like, oh, that's uh, that's interesting. People rarely queue for mountain boots. Uh, so I was like, how, how am I going to do that? And uh, we talked about it a lot. How is it? How is it that you can make a brand so coveted and so high that people are willing to give up their time to go and get it? Obviously, resellers, a lot of them. But you know, how is it that you can create that buzz or that pull, that brand pull into so people are willing to go stand inside a store? You know, people rarely do that anymore. Um, and luckily, we had some very clever product people um, who realized that there was a bit of a resurgence for this kind of like 90s Asian-inspired design side of things. And one of the first collabs I got on my door was Mastermind. So if you're into your kind of Asian vibe, gore-core stuff, um, very, very hype, very cool. And it was we were kind of bringing back this brand from the archives. And those are the sort of things where it's those in the know can suddenly catapult your brand because it's obviously that stage of early adopters, hype, mass, blah, 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 blah. By the time we'd done enough of those, we were ready to go after something like a Gucci. But you can't just go straight to Gucci. You know, that doesn't, doesn't work. From an outdoor brand to a Gucci, you, you have to have built up some level of credibility in streetwear, in culture, in lifestyle before you hit it up there. But it came at the perfect time for the life cycle of the brand. It wasn't me that did it. Clearly it was the creative directors. Uh, it was Tim Hamilton, who's, who's now moved, who's now no longer, but it was his baby. And they just created really smart products. That, and then we had some other really good ones. Cause I think was a brilliant one. And that sold out very, very fast. And you know, when you get it right, you get it wrong because the sellout isn't there. And it's okay to get it wrong as well. You know, you learn where you're misstepping and stuff. But yeah, it's all about planning of a collab strategy and which partners help get you there. I think you touched on something there that's um, really interesting that I think is a point that sportswear companies um, in particular have to grapple with at the moment. And that is the balance needs to be struck between this idea of exclusivity, this idea that we must have a queue, right? There, there yep. needs to be a scramble for our stuff, a visible um, waiting room for people trying to get this thing. Um, and this idea of inclusivity of sportswear brands in particular pushing access to sport. They exist, they say, not to sell product, but to further, you know, sporting activity and outdoor endeavor. Yep. Um, do you that, see that? I mean, do you see that as a do you see that as a, a kind of a struggle or, or no? I, not quite I don't think that's it? a conflict at all. But then that's I think where you create really smart segmentation, hierarchy, differentiation. Scarcity would always always breed excitement and and brand desire. Same as anything, collectors' items, you know, antique items, and also if you put too much product into the market, it won't sell, and then it you've kind of diluted that brand appeal of what makes something special. What I don't personally love or, or, or where I see brands go wrong is when they try and make product scarce and exclusive and highly premium when it doesn't, it's not deserving of such. And that to me, you're just, you're turning against your consumer. You become overly expensive for no reason. You put premium prices up. And I think people in sportswear need to remember it is not a necessity purchase. You know, yes, sportswear needs to be technical, and people want it to be technical, but in a choice where, you know, it used to be save your pennies up for your new Nike Maxes or for, you know, that that used to be a thing. And now sometimes people are choosing between whether or not they can actually pay their mortgage 
or buy said sportswear, they're not going to choose the sportswear. So we have to be a bit more mindful of affordability in the today's climate. And that's where your second point comes in, where just don't overcharge people. Like you, do, like people are clever nowadays. We understand how what goes into a garment, and yes, it's up to us to price the design, the brand equity behind that. But if you suddenly keep ranking your prices up and up and up and up and up, people are just going to go elsewhere. Which, I mean, I can talk about my new brand now because one of the things that convinced me to join them, and this is a bit kind of promoting my new brand, even though I've been there three days. But I was sat, sat in a meeting with the products team. And I think it's the first time in over 17 years that I have heard the CEOs go, please just keep the price down. Like the product guy was there saying, we could probably get an extra 5% margin, 10% margin on this. And, and the people in the room said, but why would we? And I was like, hold the phone. I haven't heard that in years. And I was like, I'm in. Just because it was such a refreshing way to serve their customers in a way that was just really fair and transparent. And I don't know if they're always going to be like this, obviously, but for what they were making, they were like, no. Well, I hear they've got um, a new CMO to come in and change that. Now, yeah, so. I'm going to inflate the prices, clearly. No, I won't. Um, Amanda, maybe linked to that, purpose in marketing is uh, something that is... Uh, Talked about more than ever, I think, uh, yeah. at the moment. How, how do you think about purpose? I think it's really important, but I also think the purpose, whenever, whenever, whenever marketeers start using a word too much, it loses all meaning. So, you know, everyone's talking about like purpose-led marketing and, and we annoy is it, ourselves. Is it, the new, is it the new authenticity? Yeah, absolutely. Transparency, authenticity. Uh, it's one of these things that you're like, oh, come on. But the truth is, if you boil things down to a human truth, you do have to just make sure you're clear on why you exist. You know, what is it? Why is this brand here? Why are, what are we trying to do? And, and it's as simple as that. But also it's a bit like if you were here just to literally make high margins, sell fast fashion, then trying to add purpose to that is harder. It's harder. You know, whereas if you actually are a brand who was built on something really authentic, like Levi's, like North Face, you know, or like Patagonia, you can name some really good examples of brands that, or even like, yeah, McDonald's make people happy. But like they, they if they have richness to their brand territory, then then they, they can lean into that and make it a bit more meaningful in a modern society. But I do really believe, strongly believe that brands play such a, powerful role now in society that they should and could be doing better. Like I don't, I really don't believe we're in that era where like politicians run the country and brands are just for fun. I don't, I don't think we're there anymore. And I really, I'm a huge fan of when brands do stand up and make stands, but I also know it's a scary place because you can get ripped for doing it. If it look, if again, it looks like you're trying to capitalize on a culture or a moment or a community. So you have to be very careful. But if something makes sense and you're willing to stand up and say something, you know, consumers do the due diligence, say, try and understand, does this make sense, does it? We could be seeing a lot of it this year, I guess, uh, yeah. with sort of election fever, uh, yeah. you know, spreading around the world. Yes. And you do see people 
you know, when there are areas of things get attacked, like conservation and things like that, you do see a lot of like, especially the outdoor brands at the moment, I'm really proud of what the outdoor brands and the coalitions are doing. Like, um, obviously, if, from a North Pace perspective, partnered with Protect Our Winters and Patagonia as well, they're doing a lot. And they genuinely are claiming back land, making conservation progress, lobbying government. Like, they are doing the work. And I think that's that's a really wonderful thing for the outdoor sector. And I would encourage the sports sector to do more of it. Yeah. Um, talking of purpose and, and brands and sticking up for something and, 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 you know, action rather than words, you are, of course, here wearing two, well, I mean, literally wearing zero hats. Um, you know, figuratively, you've got two hats on. Um, and one of those hats is your role as chair of opening up the outdoors. Yes. I think you're even wearing a little bit of merch there. I am. Look, yeah. I've got my logo branding it. You've got your, I thought that, I sort of tried to read that. I thought it said Uzo, the Greek. The great outdoors is only great if it includes all of us, Oto, and it's an O-U-T-O, and it stands for opening up the outdoors. So what is opening up the outdoors? It's funny you should ask that, James. I'm prepped for this question. Um, So long story short, uh, I got a phone call from a guy called Phil Young, who's an ex-snowboarder, creative journalist. He does presenting. He's an English gentleman. He's also a person of color and he snowboarded his whole life. And he called me up when I was in his face and he just said to me, I would like to understand why outdoor brands put black people in the cities and white people up mountains. I was like, hi, nice to meet you. Um, but it sparked a really interesting conversation um, at large. And to skip ahead three years, we ended up, I ended up completely staying in touch with him because it's an area that I'm super interested in. Um, and it is an area that brands need to do more, but brands fear talking about it because it's a very textured conversation. I grew up in London, was very used to kind of being around lots of multicultural. I'm also in a mixed uh, heritage relationship. So my husband is black and my children are brown. And I was always very aware that's not always easy book can't you know you fall in love fall in love and uh, when we moved to the mountains I have never been more aware of the skin color of my family than when I moved here um, and I could sit and list incident after incidents of where they were made to feel uncomfortable or different uh, in the mountains in a sporting environment and as somebody who actually works at one of the worked one of the biggest outdoor brands in the world I was absolutely appalled that this was happening in the mountain uh, and so a couple of brands got together, Patagonia, The North Face, Adidas, Arcteryx, and Vivo Barefoot. The outdoor industry is actually quite different because we actually all know each other and kind of, there's, it's a very warm environment. You don't feel like, you know, you can't talk to each other. It's not got that level of fierce competition that the sports industry has because the outdoor industry's biggest competition is global warming. So we've always kind of been unified and we've always created these powerful coalitions to take on something that's bigger than that we can tackle on our own. You know, if snow disappears, we're all in, you know, our business. So we've always used to working together. And then it was actually Alex Weller at Patagonia who really kicked things off and was like, with Phil, and we're like, right, why is it that we all can get together to do with climate change, but we all don't get together to deal with inequality uh, in our industry? And it was something that I was very much talking about a lot 
you know, you go to ISPO, which is the biggest convention of outdoor brands. They're doing a lot now, to be fair, but it was the whitest room I've ever stood in. And also outdoor brands struggle to attract talent from diversity. And one of the first questions I asked when I took over sports marketing four years ago, and I'm going to say it, we didn't have a single black athlete at the North Face of not one. I don't understand why. And I remember being saying to my sports marketing team and they they'll remember this and they were like, but they're just, maybe there aren't any. And I was like, come again, go and find them. And within a year, we have people like Dennis Rinalta, David Jeter, Molly uh, Thompson-Smith, who's a UK climber. They're out. They just don't have the privilege and the connections necessarily of all the white athletes. So Oto was born. And Oto stands for the promotion of joy, excellence and belonging in doors uh, and it's our job as the gatekeepers of the industry to improve pathways and that looks like funding for grassroots organization education for grassroots organization allyship so we spend a lot of our time going into organizations to educate them on inclusive practices how to talk about um racial inclusion you know what's the vernacular you should use and it's surprising how many people are really uncomfortable especially in central europe where um, for example, in Germany, they still follow critical race theory, where it's actually offensive to call somebody black. So it's about timing, it's about education, and it's about yeah, trying to put in place better opportunities for inclusion. Really interesting. And um, I wonder, as you're, um, as you're hopefully embarking on change within, within the sector, what are the plans in terms of measuring the impact? Sort of yeah. what, 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 what are you doing currently? What would you like to be doing in the future? Oh, God, we'd love to do a lot. Hmm. Um, I should also add, I think one of the testaments to its growth is we've actually now have more new members. So Salomon have joined, Wiggle have joined, Osprey have joined. I'm talking to new brands every week that might be interested in supporting, diversifying the sports and outdoor industry. So I'm here for it. If anyone's listening and wants to join and know more, please do. We come with an education package. Uh, we try and measure impact. So one of the things we're really proud of launching this year is the first ever allyship in the outdoors course. It's digital learning. Anyone can take it. Um, you can go on oto.com and find it. Uh, and it, it basically educates people as to what these barriers are because one of the biggest misunderstandings, especially by people working in sports, is that anyone can go and do it. You know, it's, it's a misunderstanding that the outdoors is free or football is free. Anyone can just pick it up and do it. Um, you can just go for a run, go for a hike. What's stopping you? But they've never done that as a black person and, and been afforded different, different interactions, different experiences. And the barriers are very much there. They're less economic these days, but they're very much there. You know, racism is systemic, very much so, but it's also, it's a product of our own society. Uh, so yeah, that's one of the biggest barriers. But how we're measuring the impact is people who take the courses, the number of people who work in the outdoors. So we have we are growing the largest database of people of color who work and play in the outdoors. A bit like a safe space where they can share lived experiences, they can grow and learn together, but also they can push for change uh, in their terms and they and how they want it. Because one of the worst things, one of the biggest frustration we've heard from the community leaders, so people who are setting up their own companies people of color who are actually really trying to set up their own businesses and make it a better and safer environment in the outdoors 
they complain about, I guess, what, what's the term people use? Gaslighting. So people just saying, well, why are you only doing it for black people and not white people? You know, this kind of reverse racism play. That's one of their biggest problems. It's, it's people are even not letting them have these safe spaces when they're really not harmful to white people. But white people seem to take offense. And I have, I personally have no idea why, but it's an interesting thing to get to try and understand why, why they exist, why that, that issue is, is there. That's one of their biggest challenges that they face, as well as a lack of support and understanding from bigger organizations who try and just pretend it's not an issue. Amanda, let's, uh, let's start to wrap this up. Um, it'd be really interesting just to get um, a, a small taster and appreciate, because uh, you have mentioned it, you have just moved jobs. But in terms of in terms of the role of ambassadors more generally um, in this space, um, how have you found the way that brands work with ambassadors changing and how do you expect it to evolve from here? So I, I am of the belief that ambassadors play an integral role to your strategy. So if you want to make the best product for a certain thing or discipline, then you need to work with the best people less so from just a badging exercise. Again, I'm not a big fan of badging. For me, it has to have substance underneath it. And if you really, truly want to make the best of the best, then you have to test it with the best of the best. And when you can get athletes, people who are genuinely at the top of their game, with the top of the game material scientists, with the top of the game designers, that's when you can actually create something really special because you can test and learn in a in a real situation in a real format what i think brands are very bad at is doing that so they will sponsor an athlete and, and i can say we definitely weren't very good at it in any of the brat jobs i've worked in before but they would take an athlete we would put them in clothes thanks for being us here's your pro- here's your products go wear them make us some content and send it and that is fine because athletes do need money they do need support absolutely should be partnering with them but it needs to have more integrity behind it, in my opinion. So whether it is linked to the product, great. If it's not, then it needs to be linked to something else. So, you know, it needs to be to do with pushing an agenda forward or climate change or an incredible, you know, sponsoring an event or something like that. It needs to have storytelling and, and a reason to be working together. And I think athletes now are holding people more account. I saw the surfer who called out a brand the other day, you guys will, um, I don't want to, I can't remember the exact brand, but there was a female surfer who stood away from a sponsorship because they, they, she didn't feel that the brand were actually legitimately had the integrity she wanted. And I would love to see more of that. Um, I know that's not what a brand marketer should say, but I think <laughs> it makes, but to me, it was really fair. And actually brands should be held more accountable do we stand behind our values? Are we supporting our athletes? And are actually we using their input or are we just faking it? We won't hold you up too much longer. What we do need, though, is um, if you have one, some kind of recommendation. What are you reading? What are you writing? What are you, what are you writing? Well, tell us what you're writing if you want. Uh, what like are you reading? What? what are you watching? What are you listening to? Oh, gosh. I th- you know, I, I don't know if I'm that interesting as a person, but the best thing I've watched recently was Wu-Tang Clan, the saga. Uh, it's actually produced by RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. I am a big fan of culture, music, as well as sport. So Wu-Tang Clan, I'm a huge fan. And actually, it's really interesting about their like 
how they came up from nothing, where they found their inspiration from, how the Wu-Tang got formed, and then this kind of theme of martial arts that ran through it all. It was just such a engaging watch. I highly recommend that. Uh, and what reading. Pla- what platform? Oh, what platform can we sit on, Amanda? Yeah, I thought you'd ask that. I think it was. I think it was Amazon. Might okay. Be. I don't know. Okay. Go- Google I would, it. Um, I guess. I yeah. Just Google it. <laughs> I'm. I'm not very good. I live in Switzerland. We have to illegally stream stuff. Um, and then reading. I just finished. And I'm shocked at myself. It took me so long to read this. Uh, Let my people go surfing. Um the book written by the founder of Patagonia, Ponchard. And it's a um it's a brilliant book. It 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 puts people first and isn't that a joy if we could all do that. David, what are your recommendations for the week? Um I have actually um gone back to a book that I half read about uh maybe four or five years ago that was actually recommended to me by Mike Rag, one of the big wigs Nielsen Sports. It's a book called uh, Curation, The Power of Selection in a World of Excess um, by Michael Baskar. And uh, as I say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm rediscovering it, I suppose, but it's, uh, it's a really fascinating read. Uh, I guess the art and science of curation. So I will report back in the coming weeks on completion, uh, but that's my that's my professional reading project for the, for the next uh, period of time. And James, you? Yeah, I've got one. Um, it's actually on a similar theme to the Wu-Tang Clan documentary, I would say. Uh, it's, I've, just got, I've become obsessed with menswear recently. Um, and I think I've traced it back to... I'm watching this um, TV series called Dave. Um, not David Kushner, it's just called Dave. It's about... It's on, I think it was um, on FXX in America, but it's been on BBC, first couple of series. Um, the third series is out on Disney. It is a series about a um, satirical white rapper called Dave, uh, a.k.a. Um, Lil Dicky. Um, and it's fantastic. He's a, real, he's a real musician. He's surrounded by real musicians. There are cameos from very well-known people across the board, including Drake and kind of rap royalty and Rachel McAdams as well um, but the clothes are incre- the clothes are just absolutely incredible and they're right in my wheelhouse in terms of kind of 90s inspired sports nostalgia drip I believe they call it it's just you is know. it just like champion filler Alessi threw up that kind of vibe mm, champion filler yes I uh, don't know about Alessi Kappa um, no, well, it's American, so oh. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure Kappa ever made it to America. But, oh, um, that's their loss, isn't it? Yeah, but there's some great sort of retro Philadelphia sports team um, stuff in there. I'll watch it. Top recommendation. Anyway, um, Amanda Colder-McLaren, thank you very much for being Pleasure. with us. Um, good luck uh, in days four, five, six and beyond um, at Monterex. Um, and thank David, you. thanks. Thanks, thank guys. You. Cheers.